Hi, this is Dr. Paul White, author of Making Things Right at Work, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Dr. Paul White. Dr. Paul White is an author, speaker, and psychologist who helps make work relationships work. He's the co-author of the New York Times Wall Street Journal bestseller with over 450,000 copies in print, The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace with Dr. Gary Chapman, one of four books that they researched and produced together. Dr. Paul White created and developed the Motivating by Appreciation Inventory, Appreciation at Work Implementation Kit, and the Toxic Workplace Prevention and Repair Kit that help many workplaces to become healthier and more productive. He's called a is an expert resource by the media, including U.S. News and World Report, Business Week, Entrepreneur.com, Fast Company, Fortune, CNN.com, the Chicago Tribune, and yes, my quest for the best. Paul lives in Wichita, Kansas, and is here to talk about his book, Making Things Right at Work, Successfully Managing Conflict at Work. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be with you again. It's great to have you back on the show. Today, we're going to be focused on topics from Making Things Right at Work, a collaboration between you, Gary Chapman, and Jennifer Thomas. What's a favorite insight from the book that's relevant to small business leaders today, Paul? I think one thing that happens, Bill, when you write a book, you keep learning afterwards. And I'm learning and understanding that while we want to deal with conflict at work, the better approaches to what can we do to avoid conflict or minimize it. One of the things I'm seeing is that a number of the points that we make in the book really can be used to help avoid, keep conflict to a minimum in the workplace. For example, around communication, communicating clearly. And also a, a big one that's sticking out to me is just expectations and people bringing different sets of expectations to situations that then result, maybe not conflict, but at least tension. Certainly friction because people have different expectations and unvoiced expectations that don't get met, that's really tough to do. What do you recommend that people do to even check to see if someone's carrying expectations that they are or aren't meeting? It's pretty easy, actually. Expectations are largely reflected in what we sometimes say, but clearly do in our head, and that is shoulds and should. And to inquire and say, what do you think should have happened that didn't happen? Or maybe looking at a future event, what do you think should happen in order for this to be a success in your point of view? What clearly do we want to avoid? And what do we want not to happen? so that it doesn't look bad. Trying to hear that from people ahead of time, you'll start to discover that they're coming at the situation from a different perspective than you maybe have. It's central to our discussions. Could you define what conflict is in the workplace? What is it and how is it different from its symptom? Wow, that's a great question. Conflict largely is either the event or result of different goals not being met different expectations, especially how things are done. That's where the behaviors come in, right? Because conflict expresses itself in a lot of different ways. It can be grumbling and complaining. It can be rolling your eyes. It can be making snark cutting remarks. It can be walking out of the room. So there's lots of behavioral correlates, things that we just use to show that we're displeased, but really it's the conflict or the issue underneath that we need to get to. So the snarky comments or symptoms of the conflict and just asking people to stop making those won't solve the conflict. Is that right? Uh, You're right. It may, what we would call having them substitute the symptoms. They maybe won't make the snarky comment, but then they'll start gossiping about you or something. One phrase that really caught my attention was 
stories that hurt people. What do you mean by stories that hurt people? And what is it that we should be on the lookout for? One of the interesting things, Bill, I had the opportunity to write with Dr. Chubb in the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. And what we've found over time is that a person's primary way that they like to receive appreciation, let's say it's words of affirmation or quality time, is also the language or the media through which they are most sensitive to criticism or correction. So somebody who has words as their primary language of appreciation is probably going to be more sensitive to any kind of corrective verbal input than maybe an active service kind of person. A quality time person, if they feel left out, let's say the group goes to lunch together and they're not invited or to a meeting or maybe even an email, we have these sort of sensitivities where we're more easily offended. And that can either be an event or what happens is it becomes a story, in at least in a person's head. Well, they don't really like me because they didn't invite me to lunch. Whether or not the intent is there is questionable, but a lot of times we put that into the picture. That's really interesting. I've worked with a lot of clients who have taken the five languages of appreciation in the workplace assessment, and they learn that about each other. It's interesting that it's also the Achilles heel where they feel most vulnerable to criticism or correction, like you said. What is it that someone should do if they feel like they've been offended by some act? It might not even have been deliberate. It might've just been offhand, but how do you raise that issue? Because other people might not even realize that it caused hurt. Yeah, that's often the case is that somebody may feel disrespected or offended. I think the question could be, are you always a jerk and an idiot or is it just in this point of time? No, what you really do is use... That could be like a template, right? <laughs> there you go. I'm really good at this, Bill. I think what you want to do is use an I statement and it's helpful. You can say, I've observed lately that it feels like you've been cool towards me or not as responsive. And I'm wondering if I've done something that upset you or offended you because I truly didn't mean to. I'm willing to hear and I want to know if, if I've done something. Another sort of nice soft intro is I'm confused. We've worked together for several years and tend to get along pretty well, but I know we had a little bit of a difference about this one project or whatever. And I'm wondering if something is still stuck there that's creating some irritation for you. So that whole I'm confused kind of approach, first of all, it's an I statement. Secondly, it takes you in a one down position as I don't understand versus an accusatory tone or approach. Some people will still deny it because they just absolutely don't like any kind of conflict or tension and try to ignore that, but you can't own that for them. So what's interesting to me about the stories that hurt people is they could also be stories we tell about ourselves, others the business, the market. What do you do when you recognize that maybe you're telling a story yourself that either hurts people or hurts your relationship with others? What's an example of someone maybe you've worked with where you were able to help them become aware of it and change that story? I can apply it probably more easily to myself. I have a team member here, Steve, who's a good guy and works hard and is competent, but he and I have pretty different personality styles and motivation styles. We're different generations, but I don't think that's the full measure of it. So we were having a hard time working together and feeling good about working together because he wasn't doing what I wanted in the way I wanted or when I wanted. And he felt like I was always critical, which I was. So we had to work through and we actually used a business coach to help us gain a better understanding of one another. As that happened, it helped me and him as well understand what motivates us, what frustrates us and what's important to us so that we could start to adjust our communication and also even expectations that he 
doesn't want to become the next COO of our company or whatever, because that's a different expectation and, and sort of line than if he were. So just working through baseline communication and getting to know one another. I think that's huge more and more as our workforce are all over the place and also come from different cultural backgrounds that a lot of times we're not really aware of, especially when you come from the majority culture, maybe some different expectations or perspectives somebody that came from a different kind of background has. So when you and Steve went through this process, What's one thing that you are more mindful about in order to show respect to Steve now? One of the issues is that family time is really important to him. He has a young family and child at home and honoring the time boundaries around the workday because I'll leave, I'll go to the gym and exercise and have dinner and then work some in the evening. And I would send emails and very rarely maybe call or text him, clarifying that just because I sent an email in the evening didn't mean I wanted him to respond in the evening. I was just trying to get it off of my mind so I didn't forget it. But being mindful, even so, it was better if I could wait to send them or the next morning or whatever. So just expectations about the time of day. And then also working from home, some issues around that. What's one thing that you asked for Steve to help you feel better about the relationship and strengthen it? One thing is because I have a lot of information going past my desk, computer, my mind, I tend to forget things. So it's more helpful for me to have things in writing than just an oral report, calling or sticking his head in my office and telling me something, which is fine. But I also need maybe a bullet point memo or email just so that I have that and I can refer back to it because I might remember we talked about it, but I'm not exactly sure what we covered. So made that request and he's doing that and it's going well. I have what's called a daily scorecard with my teammates. And I love just being able to read a bullet point list of what they accomplished that day and what they're going to be working on next. So it gives me a chance to make sure things are on track and reprioritize if I see them working on something that's not needed as urgently as another matter or another client matter. Here's a concept that jumped out at me as I read it, that none of us are born with empathy. Psychologically, empathy is a form of perspective taking, being able to see the world through the eyes of others walking in their shoes. To me, I thought that was a stage of development that we went through on our way to adulthood, like Erickson's eight stages. If you got it typically in your teen years, when you went through identity versus identity confusion, you surely would be able to develop empathy <laughs> and intimacy versus isolation. So was this lack of empathy something that became apparent during the remote work shift of the past two years? Or has it always been a central theme that you found with your work? Now, become more evident. Let me say that within most natural developing kids and families, it should develop well across the lifespan, but I find our culture is very poor at helping people develop perspective taking. It's as simple as a toddler or a four-year-old that has a friend playing with them and Billy's got four trucks and Jimmy's got one and Jimmy would like another one and, and say to Billy, you got four, he's got one. It'd be nice to share to be able to see it from his point of view. Actually, perspective taking can be a pretty complex kind of thing because to take on a perspective from somebody that you really don't know or understand their background and they're trying to describe it to you is, is a higher level conceptual kind of experience. But I find that our culture is highly egocentric, meaning I centered, focused on my way of thinking about things. Unfortunately, as maybe we've seen in the public in recent years, is that narcissists who are totally to a distorted way focused on themselves seem to be more frequent than we used to see. I guess part of my reaction to that was there is in the business literature and community has been a good emphasis on empathy of understanding how other people feel. But you really can't have empathy at an emotional level if you don't have perspective taking at a cognitive level. I think we jumped rung of ladder trying to make that happen. It seems like it's a superficial offer if you don't have 
an understanding of someone else's context. For instance, I heard managers saying to teammates, oh, I understand you've got a lot you're dealing with without understanding really the details of all that someone who was a parent trying to manage workload in addition to school-aged children and having to run online learning and getting them set up for the day. That's a huge burden that if someone doesn't have to deal with it, they really don't appreciate how much that takes in terms of energy, in terms of focus, in terms of worry about what's going on. And you say it very clearly. It requires that level of knowledge. What is it that people need to do in order to prioritize that more? Rather than troubleshoot it, how could they do that proactively? Because we talked about how that heads off a lot of workplace conflict. Yeah, I think there's different kinds of actions that can be taken. One could be as simple as what you're saying. Just walk me through your day. What happened at granular level than we often do? Had a call here, had an email, had a podcast, had whatever. Hear that. And like for my people that deal with customer service, I found out recently that there was a time that the number of emails that came in doubled. And I didn't hear that till after the fact. Secondly, going and observing for a while, just going and watching what somebody's doing, like on the manufacturing floor or whatever, and see what all it takes to get the product out. Sometimes I've had school principals or even parents who've gone into a classroom and who have substituted for a day or whatever and say, wow, I did not know that you were having to deal with that. So part of it is being in that role yourself. I love that because it reminds me of that principle that came out, I think it was in the 80s, about managing by walking around. Even when we work remotely, we still can do that by saying, I just want to observe what goes on the Zoom call with your department. I'd love to know how you spend your day 15 minute by 15 minute chunk and just see if it takes as long. I know that happened for me when somebody was taking four hours to do something that I should thought should be covered in two hours. I just had her walk me through it. And I, I said, talk me through how you start. Talk me through where you change tasks. It was that whole step-by-step -step process that you described made a world of difference in that work relationship because there was tension there. The thing we forget is thinking something is not the same as doing something. So I have a thought about writing something or making a call. The thought's pretty fast, but to actually go through the action takes significantly longer. What happens to someone who has that story about themselves and are often saying, I should do better. I should do more. I shouldn't let those things distract me or slow me down. What do you see as the trajectory of someone who's doing that? What can that person do to interrupt that as another form of bad story that we tell about ourselves? It's somewhat like a weight we have to bear to carry on the trip on the journey. It also is a distraction, right? So we've learned finally that we really can't multitask mentally. We maybe can do something mentally and do something physical, but to have two thoughts simultaneously we can't do. So what we found is that people are rapid switchers, but even when you switch, there's still a reorientation and a re-engagement. And so you waste time and energy. So when you have these negative thoughts and beliefs about yourself popping in there, it really distracts from you. I think to be honest, and this is hard because it does not always solve the issue because sometimes there's issues from the past we have to work with, but it's to get a reality-based feedback from either a colleague or a supervisor and say, I feel like I'm taking too long on this, or I'm just not getting it. And am I significantly slower than somebody else who's come into this position as far as learning? Let's say you're doing a new position. You've been in three months and you feel like you should have it all. For me, with one of my team members, it's nine to 12 months to get your head around. So you're doing fine. So getting some reality 
based feedback that'll point you one way or the other. When you mentioned that it's a burden that we carry having this internal monologue that talks about what we should be doing and creating that expectation that's in conflict with what's reality, that to me signaled that it leads to burnout. Does that seem to make sense from your perspective as well? It clearly could be a component. Burnout is essentially the experience when you've expended essentially all of your resources, time, energy, and so forth. And the demands are still coming. It's like in the old days, it's an agrarian example, but you go to the well and the well's dry. There's no more water there and you need some water, but there's no water to be got. So it's, what do I do? So if somebody experiences that, what do you recommend or advise them to do in order to replenish their resources? It's not just getting enough sleep or taking a long weekend. What is it that would help them both physically, emotionally, and psychologically replenish the well? I learned a, a model for stress actually from a gentleman that just was recognized. He's 95 now and is a leader in coping resources for stress, but a model that stress is the result of demands being greater than resources. So you have stress, we have more bills and you have money, but it's actually that it's perceived demands being greater than perceived resources, because sometimes we jack up the demands in our mind and think that they're greater, that it has to be perfect, or it has to be a day early, even though they asked for it on a certain day or whatever. Time is a resource. So if we shorten the time frame, that reduces that resource. And the flip side of it is we have resources that sometimes we don't allow ourselves to access. For example, delegating to a colleague or asking a team member to help out. That doesn't mean you're incompetent. It means that you've got more to do than you have the ability to get done in this time frame and welcome to life sometimes. There's an actual resource, not just a perceived lack of resource. You have a real lack of time. One is checking your mindset and say, am I making this more than it needs to be? You may have to get bouncier ideas off of somebody, or is there some resource I'm not allowing myself to access because of the way I think it, it reflects on me. But to be honest, really, one of the things that we do when we're in a stressful situation is we punt first those things that replenish us right? So we reduce our sleep. We don't get exercise. We don't eat well. We don't involve ourselves in nature or music, friendship, and humor. Those are the things that replenish us. And if we turn off the tap to the replenishing, then we're going to go dry. I've been doing some research on resilience. And as it relates to appreciation is that resilience is largely impacted by social support. And in the remote work settings, we found that it's critical for people to stay connected with their colleagues and peers at a personal level, not just in a work level of how tasks are getting done, because social support is critical to getting through difficult times or even rebounding from difficult times. What's an example from the people who you work with day in and day out, the managers who are leading companies and helping their coworkers of a way that somebody has reached out, not just to see if a task was on track, but to offer maybe playful support or connection and just to be able to add that extra dimension to the relationship so that it was lubricating the wheels of uh, work right. together. Well, I've had a number of leaders and we actually did this ourselves where you set up either a coffee break or a lunch time or four o'clock on Friday beer time or whatever fits culturally and remotely for people to set aside a half hour and we're just going to hang out together and check in and order in food to did this for our team where we had food delivered to them to eat for lunch instead of us eating lunch together and really just catching up personally and hearing what's going on. It just makes a big difference because there's lots of levels, but one is it's demonstrating or modeling the importance of relationship and that 
that were not just work units, but you're a person, you have kids, another person has a senior parent that's maybe not been well or school issues, just being able to hear and, and talk about those. Lots of times you have touchstones of number of people are experiencing the same kind of thing and they swap stories. Yeah, that's nice to have that interaction. You write that indirect communication is a key symptom of a toxic workplace. Say more about that. Years ago when I started working in the area of appreciation, I'd be speaking or training and at the breaks or afterwards, people would come up and tell me nasty stories or stories about how nasty the workplace was or what a jerk their boss was. I'm like, wow, this is fairly consistent. So I wound up doing research and then wrote a book with Dr. Chapman called Rising Above the Toxic Workplace. And one of the key factors we saw is just this issue. One is negativity. We can come back to that. But the other is indirect communication. Indirect communication can happen in a number of ways. One is you infer something, but don't really say it. I'm sort of tired when actually you were up all night or whatever. So you just hint at something or you have a request to make and you don't think your manager's going to answer positively to it. So you go around them and go to their supervisor or maybe the HR director or whatever. Also just those, you say something, but you mean something else, or there's a hidden feeling behind it. And it just doesn't go well. We have a hard enough time communicating well when we're direct with one another and understanding each other. It just messes things up. Then people move on and make decisions and actions based on their understanding, which is usually incorrect. So it leads to problems. Incorrect, incomplete, distorted because people chose an indirect route. If the solution is so obvious, in your words, you say direct, even blunt communication is sometimes the cure. Then why is it so avoided in the workplace to be more direct? I think there's multiple reasons. I lived in the South for a while, I lived in Atlanta, and they are the kings and queens of indirect communication in the South. So you really got to figure out what they mean. But it's partly a value of not being overly direct and confrontive. That's viewed as disrespectful. For others, it's that they're afraid of the response. So they're avoiding or predict as a, a negative response. Sometimes there's a value within a company or a culture of don't rock the boat. We all know that this could have been done better, but don't bring it don't bring the covert over to what we talk about in, in psychology because they just don't want to deal with it. We're going to act like it's not there. Also known as the pink elephant in the room when it's just sitting there, no one's going to acknowledge it. Exactly. So you spoke about how when you were giving presentations about appreciation of the workplace, people come up and talk about indirect communication. Then you said also negative communication. Why is it that negative communication was such a hot topic for people to discuss and get some help with? Well, it's not necessarily negative communication, but negativity in the workplace, complaints, grumbling, critiques, put downs, just negative comments about everything or sort of this pessimism and apathy. That was a normal type of communication that people would give. It's like, oh, geez, yeah, we got a big order, but I'm sure we'll screw it up again. Or shipping won't get it out or engineering won't design it. There's a good body of research about optimism and how that impacts productivity and success. Obviously, conversely, sort of pessimism. There's room for critics. We need to have critical thinking about things, but just to critique all the time, where's people out, to be honest? I've read and understood through experience that many times people look to be critical and and often prominently critical because it makes them feel like they're being superior. They're able to find the fault before anyone else does. Is that something that you've found as well? What's a way to diffuse that 
so that they stop being negative all the time. I would characterize it as condescending, that some people are negative out of a one-upmanship kind of position. And a lot of maybe unhealthy or inaccurate communication, one way to deal with it is to, first of all, acknowledge at least part of what they're saying as being true versus going in battle with them from the get-go to be able to say, oh, you're right. Shipping has had its problems in getting things out on time. No doubt about that. However, and then you can make your statement that maybe corrects perception and maybe something that's been done in the meantime. But if you totally oppose them, they're going to bow up and then you've got this escalation that doesn't go well or it just shuts down. So I just thought of something that is related to a topic we covered earlier. That was when someone is telling a story that demeans you or makes you feel bad, you suggested making I statements. I remember reading that in the normal course of things where there's a tendency for neutral or win-win situations, that's exactly what to do. Yet if someone is being a bully, they're looking to dominate. What you want to do is to make you statements and talk about their behavior because the last thing you want to do is give them the satisfaction of knowing that they upset you, threw you off your game. Is that something that fits into the model and research that you've done? I don't know about the research and I'm not great with negotiations and that kind of thing, but I raised twin sons and that is four kids. I've done a lot of parenting work as well as in leadership. I know this that it takes to fight so if you really don't want to fight if you don't want to hear it you leave which really can look maybe like you're giving up or something it's just no my dignity is worth more than this i'm not going to sit here and take this whether or not you say something or not you could say i'd be willing to discuss this more when you're in a less attack mode or aggressive mode but i don't want to sit here and take this boy that takes the air out of the tires real fast and lots of times they don't know what to do they may escalate more which makes them look more like a fool i think you may not win the argument but you probably gain some stature in the system with your so in a work situation, if Bob's a manager and he took credit for his team member Alice's work, can Bob just apologize and things should go back to normal? Is that all it takes? I doubt it. Jennifer Thomas, who is one of the co-authors, wrote with Dr. Chapman the five languages of apology, which they just re-released. And she's really queen of that topic. But I've learned a lot that apologizing, first of all, it means a lot of things, different things to different people. And she's found that there's sort of five stages or steps. I think the first three are really important and whether or not you get to the last two, it depends on the situation, but you express regret, first of all, not necessarily that about what you did, although it might be that, but at least about the result. I'm sorry that made you look bad, or I'm sorry that the event didn't go off well. So expressing some regret or acknowledging that things didn't go up. Secondly, that you accept responsibility, right? You say, I realize I didn't really prepare like I should have for the presentation or whatever it might be. Then there is the part of restoring in the sense of offering restitution. Didn't go well. I screwed up. Is there something that I could do to help make that smooth over or go better? After that, you talk about actually apologizing and then trying to rebuild trust. I find that in the workplace, it's tough enough to get to through the first two steps for a lot of people that we've got to just acknowledge and there are some settings. I have a son that works in the military and he said in the military, people just don't admit that they made mistakes very often because there's some serious consequences for that. Right or wrong, acknowledging that, man, that didn't go well and this was my part. Lots of times you don't have to accept the full responsibility because it's usually not one person's full responsibility, but say, I could have done this better. I shouldn't have done that. And that usually softens the context enough to at least be able to decompress it and, and maybe move on. That's important because especially where we don't have 
the FaceTime that we used to with people one-on-one in an office environment to be able to pick up when somebody's feeling concerned or offended by something that we would normally be able to pick up through body language. We may not have the luxury of doing that because of just our, our video connections. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Neurology, the neuroscience continues to come out really face-to-face, in-person interaction is, is far more accurate, far more rich. There's some things going on neurologically that don't happen clearly with just audio and even electronic visual, that, that there's certain signs that our body picks up that don't happen unless we're there in person. Here's something that we're going to do like we've done before. Paul, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? We'll give it a go. So in the last year or so, when you've wanted to treat yourself to a meal with family or friends, where did you go? What did you order? Ah, just yesterday, we went to a seafood place. I live in Kansas. There's not a lot of fresh seafood here, obviously. So I went to a seafood place and had this essentially the equivalent of a low country boil where I had some shrimp with potatoes and corn and a nice buttery garlic sauce. What's your definition of a productive relationship that includes conflict? Wow, a productive relationship. I don't know if relationships are productive. They are work-wise, but I think, let me rephrase it to a healthy relationship, is one where people are able to be themselves and be accepted and respected for who they are, including their faults and weakness and missteps that we all make. In fact, I think we talked a little bit earlier that dealing with conflict in the workplace partly involves having a process in place for when it happens versus just trying to avoid it. I think that's the same in healthy relationships. It's not that everything's going to be wonderful, the Hollywood version of things. How do you deal with things successfully when you torch somebody off? I see what you're saying. You're saying that it's not conflict that's necessary to have a healthy relationship, but conflict resolution. You have to have some way to resolve the inevitable conflict that occurs. Correct. Yeah, we're going to have tension, misunderstandings, different perspectives in any relationship. We need to have ways to deal with that and be authentically ourselves. Some people deal with it by never dealing with it. They just ignore it, try to shove it down, and that tends to not work well long term. What are three sources you read regularly to keep up with what's going on in the world of work and healthy relationships. Wow, there's so much out there. Recently, I have found, and and I'll do a little plug here too, the the New York Times business section has some reporters that are really on track about this. And I don't say just because this, but a week ago, our company was featured in the New York Times with a full page article. And I was just a a real gift. But beyond that, I, I think they're doing a good job of tracking things. To be honest, some of the HR stuff that's out there feels somewhat repetitive and self-serving. Again, specific sources. I don't know. Training Industry is a nice magazine that puts out things of how to train and do things well. Training Industry is a magazine that's put out by ATD, Association for Talent Development. And wow. Third one, I just personally continue to work on personal and read about personal growth issues and taking care of myself, not myself, but the core being of myself my soul as being critical to manage the stress we're all experiencing, whether it's COVID or the economy or the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. There's just a lot of stressors that can overwhelm us and we've got to figure out ways to manage that. So in the workplace, after there's a conflict, what do you think are two, maybe three of the most important things to focus on in order to rebuild trust? One of the major things is we need to talk about trust correctly. In our culture, we talk about either trusting or not trusting something. I don't trust Susan or I don't trust 
trust John. And that's just not accurate because trust is not an all or nothing kind of concept. I may, if I come to visit you in Philly, I, I may trust you to pick me up at the airport and be safe that way, but I'm not going to trust you to do open heart surgery for me because that's not your competency. So we talk about it globally. And so we need to understand that trust is situation specific. It's not all or nothing, but it's also related to a task or situation. So I may not trust you to do X, Y, or Z, but I do trust you to do A, B, or C. And, or it might be, I don't fully trust you to do A, B, or C without some supervision. And so what we found, and we talk about in the book that really trust is based on competency. Is a person competent to do it? Consistency, meaning do they actually show up? We've all probably had some maybe home repair something where they called and they said they're going to be there and then they don't show up. Or people that don't get the job done on time or at the right quality level. And third is character in the system of that they are considerate of what's important to you, not only to them. So when we have those three together, we tend to be able to trust people. If we don't trust or if people, we find people aren't trusting us, it's helpful to specify, is it because you don't think I can do it or because I haven't been consistent or you think I'm only going to do it to make myself look good? And then you can develop a plan to say, okay, how can we work together so that this concern is taken care of? What I hear that's so important is that trust exists as a relationship. It's in the context of your relationship with someone else and as part of your reputation. And you need to be in conversation with others in order to assess where you have strengths and trust and where you need to focus to rebuild trust if any of the ways that you've acted in the past have deteriorated your trust in that relationship. Yeah. It really is a one-on-one. -on -one. That's where the concept of being trustworthy comes from. And that I believe that we don't really trust organizations or institutions. We trust people within those organizations and institutions. So if you want to build a trusting relationship, you don't want to just do it with, I don't know, PepsiCo or Caterpillar or whoever, but you want to build a trusting relationship with the appropriate party within that organization that hopefully then can spread because that's another way that trust is developed is on the basis of another person's trust of you. That's what a referral is or a reference. You say, I know this person, they did this. I believe there's a certain level of trust you can give to them, even though you don't know. So true and so valuable. Dr. Paul White, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best, where we talked about the important issues around making workplace relationships work, about how important it is to address expectations and have explicit conversations sometimes about what has only been implicit, making sure that you talk not just about what's done, but sometimes how it's done. Being able to go through those conversations helps build trust and understanding and empathy with the people you work on uh, with the people who are your colleagues. It's important, like you talked about with Steve, being able to have a perspective on what his day is like or any of your other colleagues and the importance of perspective taking in empathy because it's a skill that needs to be developed. It's not necessarily something that we're born with, we're good at automatically. Lastly, with trust being able to build it, earn a good reputation, and focus on those three components of competency, consistency, and character. So for these and so many more reasons, Paul, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. But thanks for having me. Paul, before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it that people who are listening to this can go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, our sort of main website is appreciationatwork.com, and it's the word at, so appreciationatwork.com. You can find out about the five languages of appreciation, toxic workplaces, how to resolve conflict, and other resources, both books, resources, training, assessments. We're going to link to appreciationatwork.com, and we're going to link to your social media, as well as other places to buy your book online and follow you and 
bring you in so that people can learn more about your insights that'll help them lead a better, healthier workplace that you describe and, and have been so um, instrumental in bringing to the public. So once again, Dr. Paul White, author of Making Things Right at Work, Increase Teamwork, Resolve Conflict, and Build Trust. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.